be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? right? It's physically present. I mean, there, even if you're saying that's not a physical presence, even if you're not in the presence of the Lord, they eliminate all of that, right? By saying that there is no existence, not in heaven, not in hell, not in purgatory, nothing after you die. What about then the rich man Lazarus, right? Do we have that story? Right. The rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom, right? There's a great gulf fixed between us, you know? I mean, what about all that? That you have to just completely, completely ignore the Bible if you're going to believe that. So the, the Adventist leaders have hated the Bible doctrines of eternal punishment in hell. And that's illustrated in this quote from Ellen White. And how utterly revolting, she said, is the belief that as soon as the breath leaves the body, the soul of the impenitent is consigned to the places of hell. The doctrine of natural immortality first borrowed from pagan philosophy and in the darkness of the great apostasy incorporated into the Christian faith has supplanted the truth. I, I don't even know what to say to that because that's about as the opposite of what the Bible says as you can be. And not just that it's the opposite, but that she's saying that to believe that you can go to heaven or believe that somebody could actually go spend an eternity in hell is an important doctrine. That's, that's, that's her quote. What they apparently don't grasp is that man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. And when our body dies, soul and spirit do not. Instead, they say that, that it's one unit of body, mind, and spirit. So, uh, obviously, we have very much in the Bible to combat that, and the first of which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, we've got all kinds of examples in the Bible. I don't have time to go through them, but we're not returning to the version, right? Moses and Elijah on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Where were they at for all of those years before Jesus was transfigured before them? What, where, what about all of that? What about the rich man's life? What about all of that? So um, that's to me a pretty easy doctrine to dispute for the Lord God. Wicked 
are just going to basically cease to exist. You're not going to be punished by spending an eternity in hell. You're just going to be annihilated. There is no, there is no afterlife for somebody because again, it's it's, it's the same thing that a lot of people never believe. They cannot fathom that God would send somebody to hell. God's too good; He wouldn't do that. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We make that choice. People who spend an eternity in hell go to hell against what God wants for them. God's not sending them there. They are choosing not to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the punishment for somebody that chooses not to accept Jesus Christ. So they can't imagine how somebody could actually be sent to spend an eternity in hell. So well, we just we're just going to get rid of the doctrine, get, get rid of the doctrine of, of hell, get rid of the doctrine of eternal damnation. It's just annihilation of the wicked. So they don't believe that the lost go to hell. They just they're just destroyed. And that's in direct opposition to what we find in Luke chapter sixteen and verse number twenty-three, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And in hell, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Isaac in his bosom. We can spend a, a lot more time with both of those doctrines. We won't, because again, I think they're pretty, think they're pretty easy to dispute according to the Bible. So the, the fifth one that they really um, make a mistake on is the idea of investigative judgment. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, when, uh, near the beginning of when we talked about this. Um, but the idea of investigative judgment is that in October of 1844, Jesus Christ entered the heavenly holy of holies to begin an investigative judgment of the record, which would be the, the deed, the thoughts, the attitude, all of those of the people who profess to be saved. Now, you remember that in October of 1844, William Miller predicted that Jesus Christ was going to come back. And when he didn't come back, that kind of sent them into a tailspin. Now what? Now we got to come up with something else. That's when Helen White and some of these others that she was talking with, but particularly and, and mainly her, came up with the idea of investigative judgment. Oh, it wasn't that Jesus Christ was going to come back to the earth. It's that Jesus Christ was moving from the holy place into the most holy place in heaven, in the tabernacle in heaven. So he was moving into the holy of holies. And when he gets into the Holy of Holies, that's where he's going to judge those who profess to be saved. Here's what they say. I've got a lot of quotes that hopefully will help you to understand from their point of view exactly what they mean by this investigative judgment. Attended by heavenly angels, our great high priest enters the Holy of Holies and there appears in the presence of God to engage in the last acts of his administration on behalf of man, to perform the work of investigative judgment and to make an atonement for all who are shown to be entitled to his benefit. In the great day of final, atone, final atonement and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work. So, that's what this is about. So the investigative judgment is based on the Mosaic Law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, which remember, they're still basing basically everything that they do off of those Ten Commandments, particularly the Sabbath day, Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So the character of, of every person is going to be tested by the standard of the law of the Ten Commandments. Here's what they say. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin. 
in with every artful dissembling. Heaven sent warnings are for reproofs neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities. The influence exerted for good or for evil with its far reaching results are all chronicled by the recording angels. The law of God is the standard by which the characters and the lives of men will be tested in the judgment. Those who in the judgment are accounted worthy will have a part in the resurrection of the just. Every name is mentioned, every case closely investigated. Names are accepted, names rejected. When any have sins remaining upon the books of records, unrepentant and unforgiven, their names will be blotted out of the book of life. The record of their good deeds will be erased from the book of God's remembrance. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claimed the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have had pardons entered against their names in the book of heaven. As they have become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God, their sins will be blotted out, and they themselves will be accounted worthy of eternal life. Sins that have not been repented of and forsaken will not be pardoned and blotted out of the book of record, but will stand the witness against the sinner of the day of God. So again, a lot of stuff going on here, but it's based on the works of the law. You've accepted Jesus Christ and you were a good person. As, I mean, that's, their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God. So, if you have not kept God's law after you were saved, then you cannot be saved either, because now you have sins on your record that have not been repented of and accounted for and paid for. So, if there's even one, there's even one sin that's on your record when you die, then all of those other ones are not blotted out either, and you're guilty of everything. So essentially, what this comes, what, what this comes down to, this this particular idea is basically no eternal security. Yeah. You can be saved, but if you haven't kept the law, and if you haven't, if judged by the Ten Commandments, have not kept the law, then even if you die with one sin on your account, all the rest of them basically come back, and you can't. Your, your name is not, your name is going to be blotted out of that book. So this judgment determines the eternal destiny of every professing believer. Nobody can be sure that they have eternal life until that judgment is complete. That's what it comes down to. And again, at the very least, this is a lack of eternal security. But Jesus Christ is going into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to look at everything you've done over your entire life. And you're going to be judged based on what he finds in that report, essentially. And you won't know if you've made it to heaven until you get to that judgment. Here's what they say. <coughs> Excuse me, the righteous dead will not be raised until after the judgment, at which they are accounted worthy of the resurrection of life. Hence, they will not be present in person at the tribunal when their records are examined and their case is decided. Every name is mentioned, every case closely investigated, names are accepted, names rejected. All who would have their names retained in the book of life should now, in the few remaining days of their probation, Afflict their souls before God by sorrow for sin and true repentance. The purity and devotion of one will not offset the want of these qualities in another. Every must, everyone must be tested and found without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. When the work of the investigative judgment closes, the destiny of all will have been decided for life or death. So, there's no way that you can know that you have eternal life. Which again goes in direct opposition to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, these things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Right? This is very plainly 
spoken that you will not know until you actually get to that judgment, and you're not even going to be there at the judgment. God's going to decide, and then you're going to be you're going to find out what it is eventually. So during that heavenly judgment, this is this is where investigative judgment comes in from the seventh day Adventist. During that heavenly judgment, God has raised up the seventh day Adventist church to proclaim the eternal gospel to all the world. So that work began in 1844, and it's going to continue until Christ comes back. Here's what they say. The picture of the whole prophecy is clear. In the last days, as the closing judgment work began in heaven above, a special movement was to arise on earth, through which the great threefold message of Revelation 14 was to be born to every nation and tongue and people. It was following the great advent awakening of the early decades of the 19th century, reaching a climax in the years preceding 1844, that the Adventist Church arose. It has spread to all lands with the definite message of the judgment hour, calling men to the standard of the commandments of God. Again, that's what we're trying to do is keep the commandments of God. If you don't, essentially, we're going to become in opposition of the judgment of God, and our nation is going to be blood So when that judgment is finished, Christ is going to return to the earth. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to resurrect the saints who have been sleeping in the grave. Place all those sins upon Satan, who is the Old Testament anti-type, if you will, of the scapegoat. Now, we don't have time to get into all this either. But remember, in the Old Testament, they would take the scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness. Essentially, that scapegoat was the one that was carrying all the sins away from the camp, right? And I mean, that goat was left to just die in the wilderness. Satan is that scapegoat, according to them. He is the one. That all the sins are going to be placed upon and just carried away. Here's what they say. When the investigative judgment closes, Christ will come, and his reward will be with him to give every man as his work shall be. Christ will place all these sins upon Satan, the originator and instigator of sin. The scapegoat, bearing the sins of Israel, was sent away unto a land not inhabited. Leviticus 16. So Satan, bearing the guilt of all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit, will be for a thousand years confined to the earth, which will then be desolate, without inhabitants. He will at last suffer the full penalty of sin in the fire that shall destroy all the wicked. Again, this is very much uh, conjecture, um, most of it coming from Ellen White, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But we have to look at what the Bible says. And again, we can talk about a lot of different things with that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We give you a couple things here. Number one, the vision of Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, has nothing to do with investigative judgment. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, is where they get this idea of investigative judgment from. It's completely misinterpreted. Both William Miller and Ellen G. White were both wrong. Um, William Miller said that the 2300 days, meaning 2300 years, and that those were prophetic days, uh, one year each, and, and that's just at the very least generous speculation, that's it, at the very least. Uh, but that vision has nothing to do with this heavenly investigative judgment. Number two, believers are not going to be judged according to the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're not going to lose our salvation if our service to Jesus Christ is unacceptable. Uh, as the Bible says, the believer has passed from death to life. How do you go back to death and back to life and back to death and back to life? It's, it's, that's not, we don't find that in the Bible. We, are, we stand safe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
when he did that work on the cross, that work was finished. It does not have to be done again and again and again and again. So a believer's judgment is an examination of his service to Jesus Christ to determine whether his works are good or bad uh, based on the, the reward that we're going to get for our deeds. But it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we're going to be accepted into heaven or not. And we find that very kindly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Of any man, build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare, and shall, shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of which he did. And a man's work abide which he hath built thereby, he shall receive a reward. And a man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So yes, our works are going to be judged. We are going to be judged by whether or not our works line up with the Bible or not. But again, that is only to determine our reward that we earn, not our salvation or our, our damnation. So there's some very important distinctions between the judgment that's described in these passages and the investigative judgment on the seventh day of this movement, which again, we won't take time to go through them. But the third thing about this is that the Adventist distinction between forgiveness of and blotting out of sin is not taught in the New Testament. This is this comes from Anthony Hakama. He is he wrote a book about Seventh-day Adventism. He says this: the thought that Christ did not blot out sin previous to 1844 is without one shred of scriptural support. In fact, the entire distinction between the forgiveness of sin and the blotting out of sin, which is basic to Seventh-day Adventist theology, is foreign to the scriptures. Does David suggest that there is any such distinction when he prays in Psalm 51? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot off my transgressions. In the New Testament, the word commonly used for forgive is a theory. The root meaning of this word is to let go or to send away. Hence, it has acquired the additional meaning to cancel, remit, or pardon sin. Is there now any justification for the view that one's sins can be canceled without being blotted out? When Jesus, for example, said to the paralytic son, Be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven, did he mean, For sins are not forgiven, but not yet blotted out? If you do not continue to live up to all my commandments, these sins may still be held against you. Why should the paralytic man have been of good cheer? This was the meaning of these words. Again, we see those same words, at least that same meaning, all the way throughout the New Testament. What what is there to rejoice in? Be of good cheer, you have all overcome the world. What what is there to rejoice in if our sins are not forgiven? Right. And how many times does God tell us to, you know, Jesus tell us to to rejoice in this hope, this hope that you have in me, this this comfort, this this, all this stuff about our sins being forgiven. What hope is there if our sins are actually not blotted out and they can all come back against us? It goes completely against the nature. And then again, the last thing that is to, to say that it, it, it is unscriptural to identify Satan as the scapegoat of Revelation chapter 2. Both goats of the day of atonement, the one that was slain and the one that was released into the wilderness, represent Jesus Christ. Uh, he took our place, and he is also the one that carried and bore that sin on himself. So um, to say that Satan is that scapegoat is basically putting Jesus Christ or Satan in the place of Jesus Christ. That's obviously. Uh, very much against the word of God. The sixth thing that is wrong with them, and again, I'm going to just cover this very quickly because we kind of already did, but the misuse of the Mosaic Law. 
according to this uh, doctrine of the Adventists, the law works together with grace to justify the believers. And Adventism essentially is teaching that God, through Jesus, gives a sinner grace to build a holy life according to the standard of the law. And again, we talked about this for, for a decent amount of time, so I don't want to take too much time to go through it. But essentially what they're saying is, okay, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. But that grace that you have through faith is just enough to get you to the point where you can live a life that then is in accordance to the law of God. So the way you're actually saved is by keeping the law. But the only way that you can keep the law is if you have grace through faith. That allows you to keep the law. So yes, you do need Jesus Christ's death on the cross, but you also need to have basically perfectly good works. So that's how the law and works and grace all go together. So uh, they profess that they, that they believe in salvation by grace alone, but they redefine grace so that it actually includes the law. And I think that's what I was, was confusing what they believe. Remember I told you in the first week when we went over this that, hey, I think a lot of Seventh-day Adventists could be saved. I was misinterpreting what they were interpreting as grace through faith. They're not. They, they look at it in a completely different way. They say they believe in salvation by grace through faith with repentance and all of those things, but they redefine what that is. They redefine it to include the works of the law. We can summarize what the New Testament teaches on the law in this way. The apostles' doctrine of the law complements their doctrine of grace, and that results in a gospel that that really is good news for us as believers. The apostles taught that the law of Moses was given by God for one main reason, and that was to lead men to Christ. It's to point our need for Jesus Christ. If ye shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. We cannot keep the law. And so the law was there as a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ. That's what the law was for. One, once the law has brought the sinner to Jesus Christ, it doesn't have any more work to do for us. A justified man has everything in Jesus Christ. So there is no Mosaic law in the gospel. Now let me close with this. And we'll take just a few more minutes to do this. I've been telling you that we're going to get to this uh, for quite a while. And so we're finally going to. But the last thing about the Seventh-day Adventist movement has to do with Ellen White. And that's the fact that Ellen White, they say, is an inspired commentator and prophetess. Um, that's, that's what they believe about Ellen White. Let me give you a handful of things that they believe. Number one, they say that Ellen White exercised the divine gift of prophecy. She was raised up by God to guide the development of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now, let me remind you that the Seventh-day Adventist movement does not like to say that Ellen White is a prophetess. They don't like to say that she is the founder of their religion. They don't like to say that, you know, because this is a woman, and oh, a woman can't lead. And no, 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 she's not a pastor. She's none of these things. But these are all things that they say about Ellen, Ellen White. They say this. The church leaders, actually this is, uh, yeah. The church leaders from the first have accepted this heavenly light that God has caused to shine upon their pathway. Speaking of Ellen White. One reason we have prospered is that we have had this divine guidance which we have tried to follow faithfully. Seventh-day Adventists believe that Mrs. Ellen G. White exercised the true prophetic gift. They believe that God graciously spoke.
spoke to her in divine revelation, and that when he sent her through, through her, he sent inspired messages to the church. So she was she had this divine gift of prophecy. Second thing, Ellen White received inspired revelation from God. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm giving you a bare bones outline here, so, so bear with me. But I'm gonna read you a lot of these different quotes, and you can hear directly from them what they say about her. The divine inspiration of the Bible and the writings of, of, of White is the same in both cases. But the product given by inspiration in each case is to serve its distinct purpose or function. The Holy Spirit that inspired Moses, Paul, and John also inspired Sister White. Inspiration of the prophets is one thing. So it is also the providence of God, Ellen G. White was given the role of prophetic messenger to the dead people. Visions given to her at night were prophetic dreams, divinely inspired, and of similar nature to those that came from the prophets of old. But you see what level they're putting Ellen White on, putting her on the same as Moses and, and all of the other writers of the Bible. They say number three that Ellen White was an inspired commentator. Ellen White, as an inspired commentator, was instructed to say in her published writings are to be found thousands of such comments on the Holy Scripture. Her writings are regarded by thousands as inspired commentary. While Ellen Harmon was called to her work as a mere youth in her teens, she was commended by her Savior, exhort from the word, I will make my word open to you. It shall not be as a strange language, and the true eloquence of simplicity with voice and pen, the messages that I give shall be heard from one who has never learned in the school. My spirit and my power shall be with you. There is an inexhaustible treasure of exhibits to illustrate the function of God's modern message. As an inspired commentator of the Bible. So she's an inspired commentator. What does that mean? You see all this. Number four. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll speak Charlie, did you push a button up there and turn on a radio or something? Inside the thing and turn those outside speakers on? Number four, Ellen White. Ellen White's writings are immortal. She, she wrote in 1906, Instructed me, never deviate from the truth under any circumstances. Give the light I shall give you. The messages for these last days shall be written in books and shall stand immortalized. Number five, Ellen White's writings have universal and timeless application. For the last half of Mrs. White's life, as she delineated the great controversy story in detail in the five volumes of the Conference of the Ages series, she was ever mindful that she was writing for the world as well as for the church. We recognize that the principles set forth in the spirit of prophecy writings do not change with the passage of years. At time of trial, have not made void the instruction given, and the instruction that was given in the early days of the message is to be held as safe instruction to follow in these in closing days. I'm going to give you a couple more things, but let me, let me just Stop for a second and, and, and mention something here. The, this is the thing that always that always gets me with all of these new religions that I've got started in the 1800s, even into the early 1900s. Where was the truth before that? If Ellen White in the 1850s was given the truth that we need to get us to heaven, then what about all of those people before that time? Did they not have the truth? Did they not have any opportunity to accept Jesus Christ and go to heaven? Well, what about the Bible? Because the Old Testament, they were saved in the Old Testament the same way that they're saved in the New Testament. And that goes all the way back to 
here since the foundation of the world. Right? There was always a way to get to heaven through Christianity. Now, it may not have always been called Christianity. We were not always called Christians. But the, the way was there. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, who is going to die on the cross and pay for our sins. We were looking back on the Messiah coming, who died on the cross and pay for our sins. We've had the truth in the Word of God from the beginning of time. What about all these new religions that are getting started? Did God just finally reveal through Ellen White how he was expecting people for all of those years before that to be saved? Number six, Ellen White is the lesser white witnessing to the great one. Ellen White declared, little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to weak men and women than the greater one. Number seven, Ellen White's writings are a telescope which enlarges the vision of God's plan. She says, or, or they say this about her, the Ellen G. White books have been likened also to a telescope which greatly enlarges the vision of God's plan and reveals it to the world. A telescope does not put more stars in the sky, but merely helps us see more clearly those that are already there. Great. All who truly trust and obey the Bible will accept Mrs. White's visions as from the Lord. Wow, that's a strong statement. So they say this. G.I. Butler, president of the General Conference for 12 years while Mrs. White was living, correctly expressed the faith of his mission. Instead of settling, instead of our settling up these visions above and outside of the scriptures as another rule of authority, we blame that none can really take the Bible and fairly apply its teachings without accepting these visions as from God. Those who stand on the Bible and the Bible alone are bound to receive the Bible teaching of spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy and revelation. So if you really believe the Bible, they're saying, you're going to believe Alice Martin. You're going to believe her revelation of the Bible. They say that all believers in the should study, revere, and obey on the white brain. These messages, we believe, should be faithfully followed by every believer, thanks to the Bible and in connection with it. They should be read and studied. They flow, that they throw a floodlight upon the sacred records. Let me cover these quickly. Uh, if you want to cover them back and then read through these quotes later, then you're welcome to, but we're running out of time. Number 10, God's blessings follows the proportion of one's loyalty to Ellen White's writings and his judgment in proportion to disloyalty. If you want God's blessings, follow Ellen White's teachings. You want God to not give you those blessings, then don't follow. Number 11, all of Ellen White's writings must be accepted as authoritative revelation. That's uh, consistency calls for an acceptance of the spirit of prophecy writing as a whole. You cannot justify accepting part and rejecting part. For example, to accept one of Mrs. White's books of a devotional character, while questioning what she has written on doctrine, morals, or health standards, is really accepting one part and rejecting another. You can't do that. It's all or nothing with Ellen White. Number 12, Ellen White alone is a modern prophet. I have quotes about that. 13, Ellen White's prophecies in the Adventist church stand or fall together. I couldn't agree more with them on that. If you don't believe Ellen G. White, then you cannot take the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And if you don't believe the Seventh-day Adventist movement, then you, can't take it, then, then you can't take Ellen G. White. And I agree with that. And all of them fall together. Number 14, Ellen White's prophecies are either of God or the devil. I couldn't agree more. There is no halfway work in the matter, they say. The testimonies are of the spirit of God or of the devil. Do you want me to take a pick? Because I will. They're making a great statement. It's either all of God or all of the devil. Now, what they're saying is, this is all of 
What I'm saying is, this is all of the devil. Right. And that's exactly what the seven days of Adventism is all about. So, we talked about the message. I, I, again, I'm running out of time here, but they they went into great detail talking about all the ways that she received these divine messages. So let me give you, very, very quickly, as we close here, some Bible reasons why we ought to reject other ways. Number one, she taught doctors that deviate from the New Testament revelation. See that in Romans 16. See that in Isaiah chapter 8. But, but the fact that a group holds many true doctrines does not mean that we overlook it. There are a lot of things that the Seventh-day Adventist movement takes and, and teaches and preaches that I think we would agree with. But that doesn't mean that we can overlook all the heretical things that they teach and preach and agree with either. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17 tells us that we ought to avoid those that cause divisions that are contrary to the doctrine that we learn. And the Seventh-day Adventist church is guilty of that. Just because they have some truth mixed with the error does not mean that we take the truth and spit out the error. We spit it all out together. Number two, Ellen White contradicted herself. She was a hypocrite. She she talked about uh, when she wore these expensive you know, brooches and rings and things. Shouldn't get your picture taken. Obviously, we have pictures of Ellen White. You know, uh, lots of other things that she taught that she did not hold herself to as a standard. Number three, the true prophetic gift guarantees infallible revelation. Um, they defend her visions and her writings as revelation, but they say that it's not infallible. How can it not be infallible? If it's a vision from God and a revelation from God, how can it not be infallible? You can't have it both ways. If you're going to say that it's a vision from God, then you have to say that it's infallible. They don't. They say it's a vision from God, but it's not infallible. That's the distinction that the Bible does not allow. Any deviation from truth, any failure in predation, any any mark of uh, of something that is not a hundred percent accurate is a false prophet. And they say it's either all God or or all the devil, right? Well, she has visions that encourage twisted views of scripture to suit the seven doctrine. Again, I don't have time to get into some of those things, but uh, I think another big one, the fifth thing, is that women are not to teach or usurp authority over men. doesn't make men better. It just means that God called men to lead. And that women are not supposed to be able to teach. And, and God called men, not women, to lead the church. We're no female prophets. Women are not qualified to be pastors, elders. Um, Ellen White lived in direct opposition to what this man she, she was a major guy in the development of the seven she was a leading figure in the development of her doctrine for many, many, many years. Number six, the true prophetic gift was supposed to cease when its purposes for the age were fulfilled. You look at 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 says that prophecies shall fail. Right? You know that the, 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 the sure word of prophecy in the Bible means that the prophecy is not gonna, it's not gonna be wrong. But when the Bible says that prophecy shall fail, it doesn't mean that prophecy doesn't be wrong. It means that there, there will be there will cease to be a time when prophecies are given. So Ellen White didn't have the New Testament given of prophecy, not only because her supposed gift operated contrary to divine revelation, but also because that gift ceased with the passing of the apostles and the prophets. And that laid the church's foundation. Number seven, revelation for the present age is complete, it's not to be added. Please, as I explained, once delivered, 
God's not going to come back and change his plan for the angels. He gave it once. Now it's to be contended for. Right? He says that the, the, the faith that was once given to the saints earnestly contends for faith. Right? There's no doubt that Ellen White's visions added to the prophecies that were contended in the Bible. So to teach that there's still a purpose for the gift of prophecy and that the scriptures are not sufficient for faith and practice is to open the door to satanic deception. But the Seventh-day Adventist is a product of that era. So right, Ellen White's prophecies did not come to pass. She had all kinds of prophecies that she said were going to happen and never did. Um, she said that old Jerusalem was never going to be rebuilt. It's been rebuilt. 1948, 49, and on. Uh, she said that she was going to be alive when Jesus Christ returned. That was another one of her prophecies that never came to pass. She said that there would be uh, others that were living in 1856 that would see the return of Jesus Christ. She said that England was going to attack the United States. She had other prophecies. She said that Enoch lives on Jupiter or Saturn. So, most of them were not as far out as, as that, but you cannot be a prophet getting visions from God and be wrong. If that truly was a vision for God, from God, and he was going to get back to the United States, she would have been wrong. Right? Obviously, it wasn't from God. Here's the last thing, and this is just, I don't have time to get into all of this, but Ellen White's writing will plagiarize some other people. And the Seventh day Adventist, you know, um, it's, it's, been ex it's been extensively documented um, that a lot of her writings were copied from other people. The Seventh day Adventist tried to say, well, she was quoting these other people. She never gave them any kind of recognition for it. She never gave them any kind of, you know, um, credit, which is at the very least dishonest. But at the very moment, they weren't coming from God. She was writing them from other people. So I wish we had time to take. I, I was I battled back and forth of man. I could have taken a whole other week going through all these different things. But I think we spent a long time on the seven days. Um, it, it looks very very good on the surface. And of course, that's what they would want you to believe. They want you to think that uh, we're nothing different than all of you other Christians out there. We believe in salvation by grace and faith. And they say that, but they redefine a lot of those things to make it match with what they want it to say. And then they want mainstream Christianity. And you can't have it both ways. You either take salvation by grace for faith, or you don't have the gospel. You can't have Ellen G. White as both things that you want her to be. Inspired prophetess, a commentator, divine, and all of these other things, and then infallible because she's a human being at the same time. You can't, you can't have it both ways. And so lots of different things that we can talk about, and I apologize if we had to go through these things so quickly tonight, but if you have any more questions about that, uh, and I'm not an expert necessarily, but I spent a lot of time studying this now, so I a lot more material to going to get into a new one next week, all right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for bringing us out here tonight. We pray that you help us to, uh, that you bring us all together on Sunday to worship you and to praise you for what you are and who, who you are and what you've done. And God, I pray that you help us to be a good testimony, a good witness for you. And uh, again, we thank you so much for the truth that we find in the Word of God. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.